There's a lot of exciting stuff going on in the world of artificial intelligence, and while it can be hard to pick a favorite, the Bradley Center Brain Trust rounded out 2020 by narrowing it down to their 10 favorite developments in AI. Now, here's your host for Mind Matters News, Robert J. Marks. Greetings. If you check out other top development lists in AI for 2020 on other services, on other websites, you'll see a lot of hedging. This or that AI looks promising, quote unquote, or they say something like, we expect that such and such will happen. This is hype born of what I've referred to as delayed scrutiny. The thing isn't happening now, but you know what? Maybe in a year or two it will. Most of these promises turn out to not come true. They don't come to fruition. Time passes and the fallen promises are forgotten. Then more promises are made. Hedging claims about AI come in part because of many preliminary results or what developers called proof of principle. An idea is shown to work on a simple problem. Now, don't get me wrong. The idea of a proof of principle is the important first step of the development of technology. But extrapolating it beyond that achieved can be misleading. It's kind of like a staircase to the moon has been promised, but in fact, only a few steps have been built. An ultimate test is whether a technology has been reduced to practice. Has it made a financial impact on the market? Has it been adopted by the very picky U.S. military? Has it changed lives? In our list, we'll also include cases where there is a clear path to reduction to practice. With this in mind, let's walk through the AI smash hits of the last year or so. I say the last year or so because some of these stories are from late or uh, middle 2019. To guide us through the countdown, we are joined by two members of the Bradley Center Brain Trust. Jonathan Bartlett is the director of the Blythe Institute. The Blythe Institute focuses on the interplay between mathematics, philosophy, engineering, and science. Jonathan is the author of several textbooks and edited volumes which have been used by universities as diverse as Princeton and DeVry. He is a senior fellow with the Bradley Center. Welcome, Jonathan. Well, thanks for having me on, Bob. It's an honor to be here. Yeah, it's always fun to talk to you and Eric. Uh, Dr. Eric Holloway, who likes to be referred to as Captain Eric, or no, Captain Doctor. Is it Dr. Captain, Eric? Which one is it? Dr. Captain. Sounds more prestigious. It does. Uh, he works for the NIH and is a current captain of the United States Air Force, where he has served in both the United States and Afghanistan, hence the idea of Dr. Captain. He is also a senior fellow of the Bradley Center. Welcome, Eric. Thank you very much. Uh, it's great to be here. Okay, let's get started with the countdown of AI smash hits of the last year or so. Number 10, AI text translations. If you've ever taken a foreign language, you notice you know that you just can't take a word in German and translate it to English, keep them in the same order, and it be a proper translation. Uh, so something has happened in AI text translation, which has really helped us. What, what's going on here, John? So um, text translation has actually been with us uh, for a while, it's, it's, it's been a, a popular usage of, of AI, but what's really happened over the last year or two is, is the integration of these, these text translation engines into so many different parts of engineering projects. So, for example, one, one of the things that makes this so successful is that when a lot of people think about AI, they try to think about something that 
just goes off on its own and you know you you click a button and it does everything for you and that's it but what's actually been really successful about text translation is that people have started to recognize the both the benefits and the limitations and that's what's been key for uh, making it very uh, practicable. For example, I've worked with some companies that what they used to do when they want to translate an application into a foreign language is that they'd go and they'd hire a translator and the translator would go and retype everything uh, from one language to another. Um, and that would th- take a lot of time. Now, what they can do now is they can automatically translate these applications uh, from one language to another. Now, we don't expect it to be 100%. And so basically what happens is that, uh, you know, you write an application, uh, you do an automatic translation tool, and then you have your uh, translators go and simply correct where the AI has gone wrong. And so uh, what's really made AI text translation work so well is, is the expectation that it's not going to be perfect but that we're going to have a second pass. And the goal of the AI is not to replace the person, but to make the person more powerful. Now, I have been using Google Translate. I, I talked to a person that used Google Translate a lot, and she was very successful with Google Translate. And I said, what's your, what's your means of success? She says, well, I take Google Translate and I transform, for example, English into French. And then I transform the French back into English using Google Translate and see if I get roughly the same thing. Because in translation, it's like the old game of telephone where you whisper a phrase to a friend who whispers it to somebody else and you go down the line and the end, it comes out, you know, just totally ridiculous of what it was initially set to. Uh, so what is all of this stuff done by Microsoft, Apple in, in terms of this AI text translation? What have they done special this year? One one thing I saw, not from this year, but I think two years ago, but Google came out with this really cool text-to-AI thing that also worked with optical character recognition. So the really cool thing is you could go to a totally foreign country and hold your smartphone up over some sign you can't read, and on the fly would translate the sign straight into English in the picture. So like you hold it up to a sign that says buongiorno, and it will turn it into a sign that says hello with the same text format and everything. Is really neat. So that's nice, but I think we've had that technology with us for quite a while in terms yeah, of yeah, it's Google a Translate. Couple years old. So what I've been seeing happening recently, for example, Localize is a company that does uh, that specializes in translating application interfaces, and actually, what they do is they help you manage your own translations. Um, and so what they've done is uh, it used to just be that. You, you would create your app and then you'd send people to translate it. Now what you do is you, you create your app, you put in the original text, and then their app will give you different sources of translation. So they'd say, hey, uh, here's what Google says you should translate it to. Here's what Microsoft says you should translate it to. And look, here's actually what a human has translated this into. So like if somebody else in their system has had this and has had a manual translation, they'll actually tell you, hey, look, here's a here's a manual translation that someone did of this, ver- this same very phrase. And so we believe that this is a, a spot-on translation for what you're trying to say. So they kind of mix in both the the machine translation because you know you, it, it gives you some some somewhere to start, but also will give you will give you exact translations and then you can also go back with an expert later. 
And so this allows uh, companies to very quickly, if you've got an international audience, uh, I know I've, I've worked with companies where it takes months to go to the translator and get something back. And, um, you know, this, this, you know, if, especially if you're in, in several different languages, it can just take forever. But with machine translation, you can actually have a first pass done overnight. You just go through and you just say, okay, we're going to go through and just accept all the automated translations first off. And then the, the individual translators, they'll get around to checking them when they have time. And so this allows you to iterate quickly. It allows you to be able to uh, create user interfaces quickly. It doesn't slow you down, but it, it recognizes the, the limitations of the tool itself and recognizes that the humans are actually at the top of the intelligence barrier rather than at the bottom. That's a really clever business strategy, too, because they get people on the front door by saying, hey, look, AI is going to translate it for you. And then it turns out it's the people who they're getting in through the front door who are doing the translation. <laughs> OK, very good. Very good. OK, we're counting down the uh, the, the top 10 AI smash hits of the last year or so, 2020, roughly. Uh, number nine, we're going to talk about smart cars a little bit and some advances that have been made with smart cars. So number nine is smart cars. And I was talking to Eric, and Eric might uh, actually want to buy one of these. It's a human-in-the-loop autonomous driving. What is this you want to buy, Eric? Uh, well, I want to buy it because I'm a really stingy person. I don't like putting out a lot of money for things. And this thing, this is a little aftermarket kit you can install in your car that's way, way cheaper than actually buying a smart car. Oh, so this is something which you can add on to an old car and make it self-driving or what? Yes. Yeah. Um, and unfortunately, my stinginess also keeps me from doing this because you have to have a pretty recent car and that's way over how much I'd be willing to spend on a car. Um, <laughs> but more recent cars, they actually have the rudiments of a self-driving system already built in. Lots of them now, like you mentioned with your daughter, they'll have some kind of really simple cruise control that's a little bit smarter and can slow things down and speed things up. But what it gives is a bunch of hooks into the car's driving system, along with some sensors. And so Kama AI, they've been really smart. Oh, and by the way, the founder of this company, he had his start with hacking Android phones. So he has a good uh, background for hacking into stuff. But the idea here is that uh, that you take their system and you plug it into your uh, car's computer and basically hacks the system and takes control of your uh, of the little driving hooks and then makes them smarter. Uh, I've seen some quotes where people say, yeah, after I hooked it in, I pretty much only have to drive 1% of the time, and the car can do most of the rest of it. Uh, but the other smart thing here is that it's not this level 5 driving. He's not making any grandiose claims. He's a very realistic self-driving car person, and he's only having the system give suggestions and helping maintain the state and stuff like that. Things that are pretty simple to do from a control system perspective and never actually takes the human out of the loop. And the system also makes sure that the human stays in the loop. They have like attention checks and stuff like that. So that's one aspect of this that I think is really cool. The other aspect that I think is even cooler is that everything here is open source. So he's open sourced the whole operating system for his, I think it's called Open Driver, uh, the operating system that runs all of this. So you could even augment your car even more and make it smarter in many other ways. And as we've seen with the open source movement, like we've gotten huge amounts of innovation out of this. So I think this is the real direction to go with self-driving cars. 
this sounds really strange. You plug it into your car's computer, it hacks your computer and takes it over. Isn't there a lot of danger of doing that? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and you can also plug it into the internet, so I guess a hacker could take over your car too. So yeah, there's definitely, you don't want to trust this all the way. But the approach itself is pretty neat, I think. So this puts uh, smart driving into the hands of the consumer. So let me ask you, do you know offhand what the cost of one of these is? Uh, the unit is a thousand bucks, and then the cabling is an extra two hundred bucks. So twelve hundred bucks, you can take your recent car and make it into kind of a pseudo uh, self-driving car. Yeah, and then I could plug it into my uh, brain helmet and then just drive everything <laughs> with the power of my brain waves. You do. By the way, you should know that uh, Eric Holloway does have a brain helmet, and he likes to put it on and watch his brain waves on the on the PC. Is that right? Yeah, you can see all kinds of cool stuff. Um, yeah, it really gets into the whole materialistic question of whether our mind is our brain. And you can see actually how your conscious experiences drive your brain state instead of vice versa. That's facet. Well, that, that, that's, that's a topic for another time. That would be fun to talk about. We are counting down the top 10 smash AI hits of 2020. We're down to number seven. Number seven, which I don't... Wait, you skipped them right. Yeah, you skipped John. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, John. <laughs> I didn't I didn't mean to skip you. We are counting down the top 10 smash AI hits of 2020. We just talked about self-driving cars. We're going to talk about self-driving cars again. We're, uh, we're going to talk about um, an article that John wrote for Mind Matters News, which says that uh, Daimler, Waymo, and GM make big gains in level four self-driving cars. Uh, again, it's been a while since the last podcast. What is what is level four and why is that not the ultimate self-driving car? And then tell us what some of these breakthroughs are. Yeah. So um, basically, when people think about self-driving cars, a lot of people think about uh, cars that d don't have steering wheels. You just get in it and you tell the car where you want to go and it, and it takes you there. Um, that's that's considered level five self-driving. That's where, where the car can take you anywhere and does not require any intervention whatsoever. But what we mentioned in the in the last podcast is that uh, level five, there's a lot of roadblocks to level five, which in at least in my opinion, we probably won't ever be able to achieve a full level five. But uh, below that is level four. And level four is where it, you basically define certain parameters for which your self-driving works. So for example, you might have a an area of town that you've really well mapped. And so your, your car is, is able to do self-driving in this area or below certain speeds. You, you feel comfortable that your car uh, has enough sensors on it, that it can, uh, that it can drive itself. So basically as long as you are within a certain set of parameters that are well-defined, then uh, the car does operate by itself and doesn't require any intervention. What we've seen over the last decade or so is that the people who have been pursuing level five self-driving are kind of nowhere. They've they've sometimes come up with little tricks and techniques that are interesting, but they haven't gotten any closer to the actual dream of level five self-driving. But what's really taken off is level four self-driving. And when, when you see companies that have aimed at having uh, defined areas for their cars to drive in, uh, this has actually worked out really well. And it, the, the first company to do this was, was Dahmer. They had a self-driving parking garage. And basically they had cars uh, that would go and park themselves within the parking garage. And that's because 
the garage itself had an intelligent infrastructure that had uh, sensors. And so the cars weren't limited to just what they could see. So the, the cars could find, locate a parking space uh, with the help of the infrastructure and could navigate there. Um, and then over the last year, we've had lots of developments with uh, taxi services, uh, like neighborhood taxi services that have been able to um, drive in, in low-speed neighborhoods and things of that nature. Um, GM just got a permit to do uh, uh, driverless cars in um, San Francisco, and they're supposed to be having driverless cars there by the end of this year. I don't know if uh, if they actually succeeded or not, but um, that was their goal. So level four self-driving has actually really taken off. And uh, and it's kind of, you can think of level four as being an engineering project and level five as be- being a philosophy project. <laughs> that's fascinating. That's, that's a great analogy. Okay. And, and that that's why the level four projects really work really well is because they're defined. They have a scope. Uh, you know what the difficulties are. You know what your uh, what's going in your favor, and you can really design around a space. But level five is the idea that we're going to have machines that basically think like humans and can participate socially with them uh, with no problems. And that's more of a philosophy project. And uh, when people confuse their philosophy projects and their engineering projects, we have problems. Very, very interesting. The other thing that level four is, is a much more narrow AI. AI has been successful in applications to narrow problems where the idea of general artificial intelligence has remained elusive and I think possibly might be unachievable. So this narrows the scope and I guess guarantees a greater degree of success than the more general problem. Yeah, although although one thing that people, pro-AI people will say for that is that that's uh, goalpost moving because they'll say, oh, back in the day, no one thought an AI could win chess, but now it wins chess and now, oh, that's no longer an AI problem. So they're, they're saying, oh, all this kind of, it's not general AI, it's just go post moving. We're incrementally moving towards general AI. Have you heard of that sort of thing before? Yes, absolutely. And, you know, that's a fair, that's a fair criticism. I would call that AI of the gaps or algorithm of the gaps. And indeed, it's a, um, it's a fair thing to claim. But there are fundamental limitations in computer science that give a ceiling on what artificial intelligence can do. Well, one thing on that, uh, I think what makes it convincing is that, so basically as, as computer programmers get better, we invent new axioms that help us to understand the world better. And basically the way that I frame it is that, that humans are able to invent new axioms um, and computers basically aren't. And so what happened, well, the reason why AIs are able to do more and more and more and more is because we keep on feeding them more and more axioms. And that if the if the axiom well ever dr- dried up, the AI improvements would stop. But it's because humans are able to rethink and reform the world in different ways by developing these new axioms to understand life. Uh, and that's what allows us to create AIs that can do more and more things. But it's always the humans that are leading on the axiom side. And in fact, that goes back to the fundamental premise that AI itself cannot be creative. For generation of these axioms, there has to be creativity. Exactly. Excellent. Yes. Okay. We are down to number seven, the top 10 smash AI hits of 2020 and thereabouts. 
This one, I don't quite understand, but Eric says it's interesting. Hacking AI, exposing vulnerabilities in machine learning, using adversarial examples to control AI-powered products. That's a lot to unpack. What's going on here, Eric? Uh, Yeah, this actually follows from kind of a fundamental uh, result we talked about uh, a couple sessions ago that a lot of AI suffers from a problem known as underspecification. Uh, so with a lot of these real-world AI products like deep learning or uh, extreme gradient boosting or support vector machines, they generate massive, massive models. And even though they have huge amounts of data generating these models, the models themselves still have way, way more parameters than there are data points. And uh, to use an analogy I used before, let's imagine you had like a grid and you had a single dot on that grid and you're supposed to draw the best fit line through that dot. Now, there are an infinite number of different lines that are actually equally best fits for that dot, but the lines themselves are very, very different from each other. And so we have the same kind of situation with modern AI products. Because they're such huge parameter models, you don't really know what the AI does outside of its data set. Now, a lot of times you've kind of interpolated between data points. So between those points, maybe you can know what's going on. But there's a lot of unknown areas in there, and uh, hackers can prod those unknown areas and nudge the AI models in directions that the hackers want the models to go. And that's just, I think, an inescapable symptom of our AI systems, because to make these things work in the real world, you have to have these really high-parameter models to fit really complex data. But the paradox of the situation is that they become very brittle and much more easier to manipulate. Well, in fact, you hear about uh, deep convolutional neural networks trained on images, and all of a sudden you change a pixel or two in an image, and the deep convolutional neural network is is totally wrong. So right. they are incredibly brittle. So it's this sort of thing that you're talking about, right? Yeah, and it's not just um, the result is completely wrong, but the machine's confidence in its result is complete certainty. Like it's absolutely certain about the wrong result. (laughs) And in uh, this particular example, they took, I think, a self-driving AI, and they could just subtly manipulate traffic signs and make the AI uh, make very disastrous decisions. Like, for example, they gave it a sign that said speed limit 35, and they changed the number three slightly, so the AI thought it was 85. Fascinating. Okay, we are we are counting down the top 10 smash AI hits of 2020, and we're down to number six. Number six has to do with the military. AI beats fighter pilot. This, this is the headlines. In a dogfight, it's clear DARPA gets it right. Eric, you're a captain of the U.S. Air Force. You know about, uh, you know about planes and dogfights and things like that. What an AI is going on here? Yeah, I think this is actually... Uh, in one of the few hype headlines, it's actually a pretty legit hype. Uh, I think the fighter's pilot job, they like to claim they're irreplaceable and so on, but I think they're actually pretty replaceable by a decent AI. For nothing else than the fact that AIs are not humans. You don't have all the constraints of a human body. An AI can pull like uh, 20 Gs and not break a sweat, whereas a fighter pilot's going to pass out at around 9 Gs. So just in pure performance, an AI is going to be able to do things that a fighter pilot cannot. Also, the parameter space is a lot simpler than, say, what 
you're dealing with as a soldier on the ground navigating through a dense urban situation or a deep jungle. In uh, air, you're just flying through air high above the clouds where you're not having, I guess you have some jet streams and stuff, but it's a pretty simple environment. You're moving in three dimensions, but that's really not too tricky for uh, different various algorithms to figure out. And you don't even need very fancy AI for this. This is using con probably control systems that have been well studied for the past couple decades or so. Well, probably since even like before the 50s. So this is going to be a kind of AI that can re rely on really well-established control systems and do things that fighter pilots cannot. So I definitely think this is the way to go for the Air Force. That is going to be very interesting. And, and you're right about the ego of fighter pilots. I've also found this in other professions. I think that uh, heart surgeons really have incredible egos. And as far as fighter pilots, if you watch Top Gun, you see big, uh, big egos from Tom Cruise and Val Kilmer. And this isn't far from the truth. Your you ego is writing checks your body can't cash. <laughs> exactly. The line from Top Gun. Oh, is that a quote from Top Gun? Indeed. Could you say that again? Your ego's writing checks your body can't cash. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I think this also moves. I mean, essentially, once you have an AI fighter pilot or a fighter jet, you just have a really smart missile. And I think you can also probably scale that down and get like really smart uh, bullets and stuff like that. So I think you have a lot of interesting possibilities out of this uh, kind of narrowly constrained smartness in the weapons. Well, the fascinating part is, as you mentioned, Eric, is that if we do come up with these AI sort of fighters, that they are not constrained by human weaknesses. They can, they can stand these high G forces and can do things, uh, do things a lot quicker. Right. Just in general, I think the military can rely a whole lot more on robots and AI because uh, robots can go many places that humans cannot go. And plus you don't lose human lives. Hopefully in the future, all of our wars are just going to be giant uh, robots fighting each other, like in Japanese cartoons, uh, <laughs> driven by a bunch of eight-year-olds and 13-year-olds. Okay. Well, I hope not. I hope not. But uh, you know, one, one of the things about this, I watched the, they, they did this AI beating the fighter pilot in real time. They streamed it. And I watched part of that. And of course, the AI did beat the fighter pilot, but much of this was meant to be psychological. It was, it was supposed to be a gut punch to the egos of the fighter pilots to make them realize that AI was going to be viable. So I don't think this is something which is going to be reduced to practice tomorrow, but I think that DARPA did get it right in taking these first steps to, uh, to make sure that the fighter pilots understood the power and the utility of artificial intelligence. Yeah. Now, one thing I did see, yeah, I watched the whole uh, casting of the fighter pilot fighting the AI. Um, but there was a different, a qualitative difference between the two uh, techniques. Um, so the AI was just really good at optimizing really tactical moves, like it, it could turn, take tighter turns and follow the pilot. But it never innovated. It was pretty much just following and dogging the pilot until it got in for the kill shot. Now the pilot, on the other hand, he was always coming up with new innovative moves. Um, so there is an aspect still in which the AI is still very different in terms of fighting than the pilot. And so once the AI got it locked into the very small area that it knew how to get the kill shot in, then the pilot was toast. But if the pilot is able to broaden out the domain he's fighting in so there's a lot more options and he can take a longer term strategy, 
um, there might still be ways that pilots can defeat AIs. You know, this this is part of the history of warfare. If you have a, an enemy AI fighter pilot, they are such that you can probably, after a while, predict the limitations of their movements. Then you can game them to defeat them. Exactly. Yeah. So, so it gets back to the idea of the creativity of AI. So you need the creative human aspect in there in order to win the day. Right. And I think the bigger vision for this is not just we'll replace all our fighter pilots with a bunch of AI pilots, but it's going to more, be more a hybrid approach where you have the fighter pilot and then he has a bunch of robot uh, wingmen that he can control. Exactly. Well, number five deals with um, application of artificial intelligence in entertainment. Walt Disney has a great history of applying technology to entertainment. They had automatons in the 1950s in the Hall of Presidents, both the Disneyland and uh, later on at Disney World, where the presidents came out, they did gestures, their mouth moved in accordance to what they were talking about. Disney had some patents on it. And Disney, again, is a leader in application of technology to entertainment. So number five on our list is deep faking entertainment. We all know about deep fakes, where we can uh, generate images which really don't exist. John, what are deep fakes in AI, and what what is Disney doing that's gonna that's gonna wow us? Well, so um, Disney's already done some of the the deep fake research. I remember going to and seeing some of their uh, they had some animated stuff at a uh, Disney World uh, many years ago when I when I went there, where it was kind of animated in real time. The deep fakes are uh, really interesting because. Um, we've had we've had an explosion in the popularity of some of the deep fake things for you have the reface app that takes your face and puts it on some movie stars and and in clips and in special movies and and that, that, that's kind of really grown in the in the popular imagination is that available for free i i don't know if it costs money or not. i'm pretty sure it's free though um okay i've never i've never used it myself i've just seen like my twitter feed is full of people uh, putting their face on, on various things. Well, it also shows you have a good self-image, right? So, (laughs) okay. So go ahead. Yeah. So, um, so deep fakes, you know, people are worried about, uh, you know, the, the potential for using them for evil. And that's, that's definitely a worry because you could, um, I've seen deep fakes of people, uh, you know, making Obama or Trump say all sorts of awful things. And, you know, if you didn't, if you weren't aware of the technology, you might think that, uh, that there really were videos like these that existed. Um, and they do, they do make it hard for people to, to recognize truth from reality, but there's also a lot of uh, practical applications people can do as well. It speeds up animation. Um, you can kind of uh, think of animation. You can, as a, as a giant deep fake project. And so the ability to do real time deep fakes is helps people do, do some filmography and some, some special things, but another really interesting advance in deepfakes is for compression. You basically, uh, what some people have figured out is that you can, you can basically deepfake yourself. And uh, it basically, uh, with the deepfake technology, it, it uh, requires fewer bits once you kind of have a baseline image to translate the changes in your face and whatnot over the wire than it does to transmit actual video. Okay, let's, th- let's talk about compression. I. I think I usually explain compression as the idea that it's like 
transmitting dehydrated food. You take the water out so it's cheaper to ship. And then at the end, you put the water back on at the destination. That's kind of what compression is motivated by. Is that right? That's a, that's a really good analogy for it. Yeah. And uh, the, the problem with compression in general is that there's no... A general way to compress things like there's no there's no generalized algorithm that will compress any stream of bits but the nice thing is is that uh, usually what we want to transmit is not any stream of bits it's usually very specialized streams of bits oh wait a minute what about what about zip files or png uh mm-hmm. PNG images, they, they, they use a common compression algorithm, don't they? Exactly. So the, the compressions that, that we generally use is because our the bit streams that we have in our files are not uh, just any bit streams. They usually follow patterns. So for example, I can, I can zip up my text file and make it really, really small because I'm using text, which is only a subset of uh, the, the bits available for, for what I'm doing. And, I'm, and then I'm writing them in words which will make it more regular. And I'm putting those words into some of, some of which are really common sentences, which are, make it compressible. So each of these levels of expectation um, allows you to compress your signal to some, to some degree. And so uh, basically what defakes do is they, um, they kind of separate out at a really deep level kind of the, the bits that are kind of background and the bits that are needed for the foreground. And honestly, your mind actually kind of does a deep fake as well. Oh, how's that? Our connection between our eyes and our brains are not as high bandwidth as you might imagine. And so basically, when you look straight ahead, the optics are are focused on what's straight in front of you, but your mind is putting together a lot of what's around. The, you're, you're actually seeing more then you can actually see because your mind is basically faking some of it for you. So anyway, the, so that's kind of what deep fakes do is they take a small amount of data and they, it, it separates out uh, different pieces of it and can replace the parts of it that more or less matter. Eric, how is Disney using deep fakes in entertainment? Well, Disney is using deep fakes in entertainment as a way to capitalize on not having to hire lots of really expensive actors. So you can have a few expensive actors, they do their thing, and then you copy their body movements and face, and now you can just hire a bunch of cheap actors and stick the expensive actors' faces on them. Uh, or or you can go in other directions, like you can stick cartoon characters on them, and you can uh, make animation a lot simpler for cartoon characters, because now uh, you can use human bodies to do your animation for you and just throw a cartoon suit on them virtually. So there's a lot of possibilities here. This is really interesting. Do you, I wonder if we'll ever have a deep fake superstar. And I, I say that, oh, yeah, it might, yeah. If, yeah, it might sound funny, but if you think of, for example, the the brand of Betty Crocker, Betty Crocker, who sold things like cake mixes and things of that sort, uh, was a brand that was the, of a lady and a picture of a lady that was totally made up. But the brand itself became worth millions and millions of dollars. Wow. <laughs> I wonder if we're going to have deep fake superstars. That would be really interesting. There is actually a music band like that. The music band ha- it consists of four cartoon characters, and they've made a couple of hits that have gone to number one. But the actual human behind it is a single guy who 
uh, just mix it all up on his own. Really? Yeah. Okay. Called the uh, gorillas. Gorillas. Okay. Well, that's that's good to know. So let's all be watching out for this uh, application of deep fakes in in Disney entertainment. Fascinating. We are counting down the top ten smash AI hits of 2020, and we're up to number three. Paralyzed man moves in mind-reading exoskeleton. This is exciting. This is where AI is helping the handicap. Eric, tell us what happens here. Yeah, now this is a really practical and really useful application of AI. Uh, there's pretty much no other way to do what they've done except with the use of AI and something kind of like Elon Musk's Neuralink. It's not, I don't think it's as invasive, but this might actually work better with the Neuralink. Uh, but basically, they stick a number of probes into this man's brain, and so they can read the brain waves. And then they have a machine learning system that can learn what his brain waves correlate to in terms of body movements. And then they take the machine learning model and they use that to control an exoskeleton. So this is a man who's completely paralyzed. He'd have no way of moving otherwise, but they can hook his brain up to this uh, machine learning system, which moves the exoskeleton, and now he can actually walk around and move his arms. Does the exoskeleton learn? I don't believe the exoskeleton itself learns. I, I mean, it's not in production yet. They, they'll have to do a lot more. So I think it's pretty limited. They have to do a lot of training time with him offline. I think he had to play a video game a whole lot. And then once the, brain get, or the AI gets some kind of idea what his brainwaves mean, then he can have some kind of rudimentary control over the exoskeleton. You know, the brain and neuroplasticity is really amazing. And if you have a lot of your brain, which is dedicated to something such as body movement, you're not using it. It often adapts to other things. So I I could see the neuroplasticity adapting so that it controlled the exoskeleton. So the the adaptation would not be in the exoskeleton itself, but it would be in the brain, the neuroplasticity of the brain. Yeah, that's actually a good point. I think uh, maybe an even more effective route they can go with this is if the exoskeleton can feed him some kind of control signal, which he learns how to manipulate and learn to move the exoskeleton himself. Because what's even more impressive than, say, artificial neural networks is the real neural network, like the brain plasticity you're talking about. Um, There's a doctor named Norman Deutsch, and he has a book called The Brain That Changes Itself. And these are fascinating accounts of what you can do with brain plasticity. Like there's one lady who was born, I think, without any sense of balance, so she could never stand up. Um, So he gave her a buzzing device that she would hold in her hand. And once she got off balance, the device would buzz. And she was able to retrain her brain and actually regain a sense of balance so she didn't even need that buzzing device anymore. Yes. In fact, we have had a podcast with the neuroscientist Yuri Daniloff, who is one of the founding scientists of of that, and also a, a gentleman named Sakir, Dr. Sakir, who's head of the company that, that markets this. This is astonishing stuff. Uh, they mentioned that the tongue itself has more neurons per inch than any other part of the body. And so, therefore, if you stimulate the tongue, you uh, you are stimulating a lot of uh, a lot of nerves. And the other thing uh, that was mentioned is that the tongue, when you developed, is basically just pulled out of the brain. So oh, the tongue weird. has all of these nerves which go directly to the brain. So that's the reason that these tongue vibration things work so well. 
So the tongue is actually part of the brain. Yeah. Well, in a way, it's kind of part of the brain that as you develop, it's pulled directly from the brain and you have a lot of neurons, which uh, or a lot of connections, which go directly to the brain. Yeah. That's just, that's just fascinating stuff. You know, I got so exuberant uh, that I skipped uh, number four, didn't I? Yes. I did skip number four. Now there was no guarantee in this countdown that they would be in order. Did I say anything like that? No, I don't think so. I think that's implicit in a countdown. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Well, yeah, okay. It's a count meandering. It's a count (laughs) meandering. You're right. Countdown means, yes, count from the top to the bottom. You're right. You're right. Okay. So we're going to continue our count meandering with uh, the, the, the top 10 smash AI hits of 2020. This story actually dates back to 2019, and it is uh, deep learning for, I hope I can say this right, leukocoria or white eye. Uh, white eye is something that, which occurs in children, and it's due to a pale reflection from the back of the eye, and it's a precursor to, here I go again, renoblastoma, which is a fancy word for eyeball cancer. Now, the story behind this, number four smash hit of 2020, is very local, very, very close to me. There's a professor at Baylor University in chemistry named Brian Shaw. He had his son, Noah, who lost an eye to cancer. And he became dedicated to the idea that he wanted to develop something to prohibit this from happening in other people. Not prohibit it, but at least have an early detection. So he contacted a professor in uh, the Department of Computer Science at Baylor University, Doug Hammerley. And they applied a deep convolutional neural network to look at images of kids' eyeballs to tell whether or not they had this condition called white eye. And they developed it, and it was, it was very, very successful, and now is available as an app, a free app. They decided not to make it commercial and try to make a bunch of money out of it, but this is an app that you can get on Google Play or the Apple App Store. And the name of the app is called Cradle, C-R-A-D-L-E. And what it does is you put the app on your cell phone and it scans the images on your cell phone of your child and tells you whether your kids, the pictures of your kids on your cell phone, have this white eye, this indicator of eyeball cancer. And I thought this was just an astonishing, wonderful application of artificial intelligence. So that's number four. So we continue to count down the top 10 smash AI hits of 2020. We've been to through number three. Now we're at number two. This is Carnegie Mellon and Facebook AI beats professionals in six-player poker. This result astonished me. I have heard poker players say that poker is not a game of rules. It is a game of bluffing, of psychology, and apparently not. Uh, AI was developed called Pluribus. And in the game of Texas Hold'em, Pluribus was able to beat one-on-one professional Texas Hold'em players. And it is interesting that in this World Series of Poker that the same people show up year after year after year. And Pluribus beat uh, Darren Alias. I don't know these people. I don't watch the World Series of Poker, but he holds the record for the most World Poker Tour titles. And Chris Ferguson, he was winner of six World Series of Poker events. Each pro separately played 5,000 hands of poker against five copies of Pluribus and Pluribus won. Uh, 
Now, this in itself was an astonishing result. What was more astonishing is the Pluribus won in a game with five different pros at the same time. So there were six players. One of them was Pluribus. And they played a total of 10,000 hands. And again, Pluribus emerged victorious. This to me was an astonishing result and lets me know that winning a poker is very highly algorithmic. There's some randomness that goes in here for sure. But the fact that artificial intelligence can win at Texas Hold'em to me is astonishing. One of the things they used, which I hadn't seen used before, was something from game theory called the Nash Equilibrium. Possibly you saw the movie A Beautiful Mind starring Russell Crowe. It was a story of John Nash, who had some mental problems, but was a genius mathematician and came up with the idea of a Nash Equilibrium. And he won a Nobel Prize for doing this. And the Nash Equilibrium, again, is a game theory sort of concept, which was applied to winning uh, this Texas Hold'em and was a technique used by Pluribus in doing this defeat. Again, I think that's an astonishing result. John, Eric, have either of you heard about this? Um, I think I saw previous results where they'd beaten two player games, uh, but uh, yeah, I haven't seen this one with five players before. It's very interesting, and um, I'm also very curious about these all of these results where AI beat humans, because um, you you're only ever told the end result that the AI beat the human, and you're given some kind of insight into how their play style differs from the humans, but you don't really know much about what exactly is going on under the hood. That's very interesting because we saw nothing about Pluribus playing Pluribus, right? What would happen then? Yeah, well, I think that's actually part of its training. It plays itself a number of times to, it's kind of like the AlphaGo Zero that plays itself a whole bunch in order to develop its strategies. Yes. So I think that's what's going on here. Yeah, it's just very interesting to think about um, because like we were talking about with the AI hacking, uh, when you have these really complex AI models they have these kind of blind spots where if you know where the blind spots are, you can poke those spots and make them do what you want. So I'd be curious if down the road with all these uh, game-playing AIs, if people start finding out these blind spots in the AIs and figuring out how to control the uh, the game AIs. Yeah, that's a, that's a fascinating observation. We will see, I suppose. We are counting down the top 10 Smash AI hits of 2020, and we are down to number one. This is the maybe the most powerfully impacting artificial intelligence result of the last year. Protein folding. AI has cracked a problem that stumped biologists for 50 years, and it's a huge, huge deal. Jonathan or Eric, elaborate on this a little bit. Well, protein, protein folding has been a, a tough problem uh, for biology for a long time just because there's um, all the interactions. It is hard to predict exactly how a protein is going to actually fold. So typically, or historically, they've done it by uh, X-ray crystallography, where they basically shoot X-rays at uh, proteins and watch them bounce off, um, and then kind of guess what the what the protein looks like based off of these X-rays. But uh, what they've really always wanted to do is be able to uh, guess what the structure is just from the sequence. So, if, if for those who don't know, you know when you have you have DNA, and DNA is basically this long strand um, of of what are called bases, which are basically the letters of DNA. And so, those letters of DNA get translated into proteins, which again, there's just a long strand of proteins, and there's again 
basically letters of proteins that are just connected all along. But un- unlike the DNA, the proteins actually do things. Uh, they connect with each other. They um, they have interactions between the individual amino acids. The problem is is that you know there's all sorts of interactions that might happen between these different amino acids that would cause the protein to go into different shapes. And so the question is is which which way will it actually fold? And uh, being able to suss that out has been a a, a difficult problem. And and the biologists always want to be able to to just be able to see the sequence and infer what the final shape is going to be. So that that's kind of what they've been. Uh, that's that's been the problem. And uh, humans have have generally been bad at coming up for with rules for this. And so this is why they they put it to AIs to try to uh, get get the AI to develop a system that can take a, a, a sequence and predict what the final structure is going to be. Way before the artificial intelligence, uh, I think I learned this from you, Eric, was that there was a there was a game called Fold It. Now, again, this is way before this artificial intelligence, but it Fold It was a demonstration of humans' creativity. Could you walk us through that? And then I think that there's another point I want to make. Uh, yeah, the basic protein folding problem it's what's known as a NP-complete or NP-hard problem in that just looking at the basic structure of the DNA, there are, when you have like a string of 10 DNA, you get like uh, 2 to 10 different possible ways that could fold. And uh, when you have computers just trying to go through all the permutations, it takes way too long to do it just by brute forcing it. So they found that uh, complete amateurs, people who have no understanding of biology whatsoever, when they saw these folding algorithms doing their thing, they could easily spot optimizations that the algorithms were missing. And so the researchers just turned it into a game and they started making breakthroughs. I remember yeah, Fold it used to uh, ask you, hey, you're not using your computer today at 2 a.m. to 5 a.m. Let me use your computer. Yeah, that was their original approach. That's that's where they got this insight from. First, they just were trying to use people's spare CPUs, and they were very successful at that. They had like thousands and thousands of people donating loads and loads of CPU time, but still, even with all the free CPU time, they made very, very little progress. But part of the software was a screensaver that showed the uh, computer owner what the software was doing with the protein folding. And that's where people started contacting the researchers saying, hey, I could do a much better job than this algorithm is doing. And so they just turned it into a game. And so indeed, this is, I think, a very, very interesting insight into the Fold-Up program. This breakthrough was made by, I believe, DeepMind. And DeepMind is famous for reinforcement learning, which was used, for example, to beat the world champion, Lee Sedell, in the game of Go. And it's a game. Protein folding is a game. And the game was proposed to users, and the users before the AI were able to solve it much more quickly than the artificial intelligence. But that being said, I do believe that AlphaFold does even better than the human players does. Oh, AlphaFold, yes. I, w- I was talking about the old technology, and now we have the new AI, which is the AlphaFold. Yes. Yeah, although that being said, I don't know what exactly it means when it says AlphaFold has solved protein folding. Are they testing this on entirely new DNA sequences? And if so, how do they actually know it's telling them the truth? I think they're actually still using a known data set as a reference data set. And so they're 
yeah, I don't know if it's actually completely solved protein folding. Well, biologists really are excited. Uh, one of them, Andre Lupus, said this is going to change medicine. And this was in an article in Nature, a very, very prestigious magazine. Not always right, but very prestigious. It says it will change research, it will change bioengineering, it will change everything. Yeah, although, although there's another thing too. This uh, Andre Lupus, they try to hold him up as an example of how incredible AlphaFold is. They say, oh, he spent a decade trying to figure out the shape of one protein and AlphaFold does it in half an hour. But why, <laughs> but, but why was AlphaFold able to do it in half an hour? It's because it depends on decades and decades and decades of researchers just like Andre Lupus trying to figure out the shape of one single protein. And so really, Andre Lupus, his research is accelerated because he has better access to all these other scientists' research through AlphaFold. Let me ask you, uh, Jonathan, Eric, what is going to be the impact if AI is able to solve the protein folding problem? Where is it going to be used? Will it affect me? Basically, what it's going to allow you to do is model drugs before, you, before we actually test them. So for, for example, if, if some drug company has a drug that they want to put out, they're going to be much more able to test its effects against various proteins because it's going to be able to have a model for them. So it, so it can estimate what it thinks is going to happen and run a lot of those tests in silicon rather than in life. Wow. Although even also there, I would be a bit cautious too, because uh, this again is one of those deep learning models. So, and I'm not quite sure how they're verifying the results. So you could have a lot of corner cases that DeepMind is just totally off on with the folding. So um, I think it can probably accelerate them by showing them where to look, but I think they probably can't completely replace uh, real experiments too. Fascinating stuff. Well, there you have it. We've worked our way through the top 10 smash AI hits of 2020 and thereabouts with Bradley Center Brain Trust members, Eric Holloway and Jonathan Bartlett. Eric and Jonathan, thank you very much. It's It's been a blast and fun to talk to you. We are wrapping up this top 10 list. So until next time, be of good cheer. This has been Mind Matters News with your host, Robert J. Marks. Explore more at mindmatters.ai. That's mindmatters.ai. Mind Matters News is directed and edited by Austin Egbert. The opinions expressed on this program are solely those of the speakers. Mind Matters News is produced and copyrighted by the Walter Bradley Center for Natural and Artificial Intelligence at Discovery Institute. <laughs>